Hey everybody, this is Brennan Lemon. Welcome to the Madness Continues podcast. Uh, a little note keeping for today, just real quick. Uh, this is a great interview I had with Ron Tite, author of uh, Think, Do, Say, a fantastic book that is available today on Amazon, uh, October 8th. I'll have a link in the show notes for you. However, uh, there was some technical complications recording with him just a little bit. It was uh, some some issues with Skype and our connectivity. I'm trying to do interviews in person as much as possible, but there was a little hiccup in this one. I've edited it as well as I can to put everything together. It was a really good conversation, and by the time technical difficulties really started, we were so far into talking that uh, I, I it just made more sense to continue and try to make everything line up. So, uh, please enjoy this conversation I have with Ron Tite, as well as uh, his book. It's really fantastic. Again, do think, say, pardon me, think, do, say. <laughs> I'm going to leave it in there. Think, do, say. It's a great book. Uh, and, and honestly, something that I would recommend to every executive, particularly in, in marketing, particularly in branding and sales. Uh, it's really worthwhile to read. My experience in offices has taught me that. So uh, please check that out. And as well, if you want to click on the show notes, I'm releasing a book. That's right. It's called The Power Bible, co-authored with New York Times writer William Petit III, uh, Cora, top writer um, in all kinds of categories, and as well as myself, top writer in sales and marketing. Check it out. Uh, it's about how to exercise self-discipline and change your life, the story of how Bill overcame his drug addiction to come back, graduate law school, move to New York, and start an amazing career as a comedian and writer, and myself, how I overcame living in my truck and being homeless to paying off all of my debt within two years. Um, many of the lessons that we've learned are the same across both of us. So without further ado, please check it out. Ron Tights, Think Do Say, and this is the interview with the comedian, the writer, the branding guy, the marketer, as much as that would make him roll his eyes. Ron Tight, everybody. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Madness Continues podcast. Uh, this is cool. We get a lot of different people sometimes, uh, comedians, artists, etc., all over, uh, because, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to navigate this crazy world ostensibly. Ostensibly, the point of this podcast is trying to figure out how to handle present shock, the world of, of present shock and being confused all the time, and so it's good to have people who have figured some things out on the podcast and today that guest is ron tight uh answer and uh author of think do say welcome to the podcast the madness continues ron hammer of the gods is that you <laughs> oh my god did i write that in an email to you <laughs> no it's in, it's in your apple podcast oh that's right that's, yeah you know hammer come on i do my god's lemon <laughs> I do my research too, Brandon. I do my research too, and I and when I saw it, I thought, oh, this isn't like a a do-it-yourself handyman podcast, is it? Because I am the wrong guest for that. <laughs> oh my god, man! Yeah, you are you're you're a live wire today. You got you got so everybody doesn't <laughs> doesn't know this, but Ron just got delayed and flew in from. You live in Toronto, don't you? I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, from Chicago and he came ready to rock, man. You are not <laughs> you are not fooling around at all. <laughs> it's cuz I've been up since 5 and I'm punch drunk. <laughs> you got, you were like you've been up since 5 a.m. You've had like 8 
airplane coffees and you're like yeah. ready to you're ready to roll. He's been giving yeah, and <laughs> and hurl. I'm ready to roll and hurl all at once. Either one, man. It's just it's whatever's going to keep at this point you're just at this point you're just running a a, a marathon of hurdles. I feel yeah. like today. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um well, Ron, I just should let everybody know so if you're not part of Ron's audience, uh, you should be because he's uh, he's a very, as you can hear, unique, interesting, fun guy. And give uh, talks all over. You're a former comedian. You uh, are a, a a very creative marketer, which is a term that I will hopefully not cause too many people to roll their eyes at. And <laughs> um, and, and and author of Think to Say. And so this is cool. This book is uh, is not quite out yet. I think it's released soon, but. I, um, you're, it's, uh, October 8th, I think is when this is coming out. And, um, so this podcast will be le- released right after the book is released and uh, you guys can go pick it up. I'm sure on Amazon. And, uh, I really want to dive in and talk about this book. I got an advanced copy and went through it. It's very interesting. But before that I do, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your history with comedy. I'm a comedian. Uh, you know, what, 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 what caused you to get in? What went wrong in your life to cause you to get into comedy? And and what went right to cause you to, to, to get out? Or do you still dabble? Yeah, I um well I guess I'll I'll answer the first question. First, you know, I I, uh, I always loved the craft of stand up, but just growing up I just I wanted to to see the method to the madness. Like I I got the, the performance aspect of it. And I just really wanted to like, well, how do you do that? Like what well, really, how do you do it? And so I just kind of studied it. From afar, and then this is gonna. This may blow your mind in a in either a bad or good way. But right. so the very first time, yeah, the very first time I did stand up, I decided that I wanted to do stand up. I was taking improv stuff at Second City, uh-huh. and and I and I, I'm not a great improviser, and I thought I just I really I've always loved stand up, and I do stand up. So I went to a friend. I was like, hey, so how do I do it? Like, how do I just take that first step? He's like, oh, you go to an open mic night at Yuck Yucks, and you put your name down. Down and you do, and you just keep going back every week. Yep. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna check it out first, and I'm not gonna commit to anything. I'm just gonna go. And I went, and I, I was like, this is a shit show. This is this is not a. It's not funny. <laughs> B. This is not inspiring in any way. I'm like, I'm not doing this. Like I'm ju- I'm already better than these people, and I'm not doing it. Yeah. And so then he said, okay, well, if you don't want to do that, then you got to find a producer who's producing a live show. And get them to convince you to go on, even though you've never done it before, and see if they'll give you five minutes off the top, like a small club show. So I just said, well, why don't I just make my, myself a producer? Yep. <laughs> I'll just produce a show. And so my very first time ever doing stand-up comedy live, I made myself the headliner, and I did a 45-minute closing set. Oh, my gosh, man. <laughs> how, so did, I had, how, how did it go? It killed. It was awesome. And and you can imagine, I mean, you know this, like why it was so great. I mean, we sold it out. We donated money to charity and it was a big, it was, a, it was an event of like, hey, I'm going to start my stand-up career. Yeah. Um, and and I did 45 minutes. I had never done the material on stage before. So it was great to just get over the, the butterflies of just being on stage and, and doing comedy live. Yep. But as you know, you never, ever, ever do 45 minutes of new material. No. And <laughs> the joy that comes from a new two minutes hitting with an audience. 
and you get in that like, okay, fuck, there's something there, right? There's, there's something, there's something good there. This I can explore so funny, that a bit yeah. more, whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did it forty five. Yeah, it's incredible. You're like, and, it was a, and then it was just all downhill from there. <laughs> yeah, you're at you peaked too early. That was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I know. This, this is like what people don't understand is like what Ron just described to everybody who's not done comedy in the audience, which is some some people. First of all, go try doing stand up because it's not going to go the way he just described it. And yeah. what he just described is basically like somebody going like, you know what? I think I can jump out of an airplane and then being like, yeah, I don't need a parachute or anything. I'll just go right out. I'll just do it. I'm fine. And then they landed and it was OK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. And I still some of the material I still love. Um, and um, so I like I did that for many years and, you know, just doing straight up stand up stuff. And I absolutely loved it. And then I started hosting a little bit more and stuff. And then because I worked in advertising, I started doing corporate shows. Oh, yeah. And I love that. And um, and then like something really interesting happened. And I was doing this. I was doing a, I converted my one man play play i uh, sorry i converted my stand-up into a one-man play and did that at the edmonton fringe festival oh yeah okay. and yeah so what and what's really interesting for your listeners to, to know because you know this but that and you kind of hinted at it with your with your first question of like what went wrong in your life that yep. turned you to to stand-up comedy and that there is there is pain and there is frustration or there's something at best, it's an annoyance behind the stand-up material. And so to take your stand-up into a play form, you need to expose the emotion or emotional underbelly, like the emotions and the pain that inform the comedy. That's how you make it a play. And that's how you create emotional arcs through the play. And in stand-up, you just typically don't do that. You just cut straight to the setup and the punchline. Yep. And I, I – so I was performing and I – there was a callback. There was a line in the play. It was right at the very end of the play. Uh, the very, the very last line is a callback to something that's earlier in the play. And I don't mean sound douchey by that, but it was just like you know. And and the and the line was um, be careful. And um, and so when I in the so the room is silent, and I go to say the line, and, and I say so hey. And before I could say the line, there was a woman in the front row who knew what the line was going to be. Oh, and no. all I heard was her, her, this intake of air where she just went. <gasps> <laughs> and that was the most powerful moment I ever had on stage. Yeah. Like it was not even like not even like I've had, you know, standing ovations of people slapping their knee laughing, not even close to a silent room where I understood that the comedy had actually put me in a place to control somebody's emotions. Oh yeah. And then I had them, you know, in my hand and I could take them wherever I wanted them to. And that's when I realized that where I personally got more satisfaction was in delivering something in the silence that followed the laughter. Mm -hmm. And so when I speak now, I, you know, I still, I use the comedy to, but I'm there, I know I'm not there to be funny. I'm there to to be effective at the message I want to deliver, and I deliver that message in the silence that follows the laughter, mm-hmm. and that was and it's just way more powerful for me. I, you know, I I get why it's not for everybody, but for me, and so I just I I I tried doing it in corporate shows where I'd add some little bits of strategy, and it just it just was weird because because they expect one thing from the evening entertainment, mm-hmm. and it was this pivot 
where I realized that there was there's there's no market for a comedian, or there's a small, very small market for a comedian who knows a lot about business, but there's a massive market for a funny business guy. Oh yeah, yeah. And it, so I switched, and I said, like, take comedy out of my background. I don't want it mentioned in my bio, like all that stuff. Just remove it. Yeah, real. That's interesting. Okay, so that's fascinating to me because I feel. I feel like the most powerful moment for me on stage. So I love the laughs. Obviously, you love anybody who's in front of an audience loves getting a laugh. Um, I really enjoy that. I love that the feeling that it gets. You, you do feel, but what you're describing is like this feeling of power that you have, where you're like, "Oh, I've got this whole audience." Like, and it's funny because the moments yeah. that I've had, the moments that I've had that are that are most effective, like that, that I'm on stage and I feel most satisfied with, are also. Not necessarily laughing moments. They're 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 either yeah. one they're either one of two moments. The first is that I really enjoy having being in the middle of a bit where I'm telling a story exactly like you were describing, and something happens and the the drama like heightens in the story, and yeah. when, and then when I pause and I look at the crowd and everybody's really silent, it's because they're all waiting for like okay, then what happens? And that moment is I'm yeah. like, oh, I could say anything right now. And you guys <laughs> you guys are gonna go you guys are gonna totally go with me. And that feeling of of uh, you know, I don't know if it's control or effectiveness or you know, when you have an audience kind of enraptured like that, that's just really, really there's something about it where you feel like, Oh, I'm doing I'm doing so well right now. Um, I think that's my favorite one. My second moment that I think ties it is when you you deliver a punchline but it you but it's a punchline that requires the audience to put a couple of things together in their head, uh, and yeah. you'll admit, you'll deliver the punchline, and then pause, and then like a beat or two passes, and then everybody starts laughing because they're all starting to get what you meant, and that I feel like those two moments yeah. where they're like you're like oh I've got them I'm pulling them wherever I want to take them. That that moment is just like some, there's something so satisfying about that. But I think that there's something there. Like it's truly they say that you know the hallmark of a of a stand-up comic is a, a distant father and an overbearing mother. So I don't know what combination of things in my life <laughs> have to happen in whatever way they had to to get me to want to get that particular kind of satisfaction. But uh, that's but that's what I that's the juice I'm trying to get the hit from every every time I get on stage basically. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I, I think, and it was just more of a, you know, in the, in the earlier on, it was like, like it was the laugh. It was like crack. I just wanted more and more of it, and that kind of, the ovation and the just like I, they got it, they understood it, they like it, they find that funny too. They find that funny too. Got it. And, um, and that's incredibly satisfying. There's some connection there. I think whatever it is, I think there's some feeling of like you guys are seeing me and believing me and following me and like all of that. Uh, but but I'm curious, kind of. Okay, so here's what I want to pivot also to. So did you, so you were doing improv for a long time at the Second City. Um, ha, were you working? Uh, you know, was your day job working in marketing at the time? Was that before or after? Or how did that come about? Because you have a very successful. A business now and you know one of the things we do here at the madness continues is to talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and i was very excited particularly for this conversation because you kind of straddled the, those similar worlds um and uh and and i'm curious kind of how you got involved with church and state and and, and started it and, and and where that kind of developed from yeah okay so yeah i mean i um i so what i 
worked in both advertising and comedy simultaneously. Mm. And, and people are always like, is this your side hustle? And, and I'm like, I, you know, I just don't define it. Like, I just whatever. I do some stuff that's during the day and I do some stuff at night at a club. But I didn't – I found hanging out with either group like exclusively was painful. <laughs> like I just could not hang around comedians all day every day. I just could, there was just no way. And if you think hanging around comedians is depressing, try hanging out with a bunch of creative advertising creatives. Like, <laughs> so I, I I do like to hang out with both, but just not exclusively. I just like to have other people in my life. That's for so balance. funny. <laughs> and but but what was interesting was that I was a I was actually an account guy in advertising, and I started to do comedy. And then that play that I just spoke about, when I was performing that play, on the final night, I close out the Fringe Festival. I was the last show. I we go to a party. I got in my hotel. I wake up the next morning. No word of a lie. Hotel is filled with smoke. What? Uh, I go to the door. I'm the only person staying on the floor. I go to the door and hear the crackling of the flames on the other side of the door. What? You're, you're kidding I, me. In Edmonton. In Edmonton, I had to get plucked from the window and saved from a fire. The hotel was on fire. My entire floor was on fire, but I was the only one staying on the floor because it was under renovation, and they gave me this big, big room that had no furniture in it so I could run the show. I could do, rehearse the show. And um, so I had to get plucked from it. That made the front page of the Edmonton Sun the next day, massive fire. And then the, in, the headline inside the paper was, Fire No Laughing Matter for Community. Medium, um, <laughs> and and so I went, but I went back to the agency and said, "Hey, my life flashed before my eyes, and account services didn't make the final cut." <laughs> oh, I've been oh. in the creative department. I want my advertising life and my comedy life just to be closer together. Yeah, and so I moved in the creative department. And, and actually, for the entrepreneurs, this would be a great. A great lesson. I, so I went to the boss, a great guy named Tom Blackmore, and said, "I want a creative department, and I'll take a pay cut to do it." Mm. And he's his first words were, "Can I swear on your podcast?" Yeah, you go ahead. His first words, and I quote, "Fuck off." <laughs> and I and I said, "Okay, like I'll I'll work on." I get it. I'm an account guy. I'm running. I was running the Intel account. He said, "No, no, no, no." I said, "F off," because. Uh, uh, you should never take a pay cut. You will move into the creative department. You have two weeks to find your replacement. And then you'll move over as, as a and you'll start. But that that support that that Tom Blackmore and Bill Sharp, you know, provided was is just it made the, the world of a difference. And so I moved in the creative department. And then those two worlds were a little bit closely together. And then I did that. And then became creative director. And um and then I just saw that advertising was changing, and I I, I was at a shoot in Montevideo, Uruguay, shooting a, a you know TV spot for a large multinational CPG, and I could not believe that we were still doing that. That we were flying halfway around the world to shoot thirty seconds of a medium that nobody was watching. Oh yeah. And so <laughs> I returned and and I quit. Yeah. What year and was I that just in? Quit. Um, that was in two thousand eleven. Oh yeah. And then eight years later, they were still still doing things like that even. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I knew that I just didn't want to do it anymore. And so I, I just knew I wanted to do my own thing. And I knew that the world's like the content world was just as like the it was an e ecosystem problem. 
problem. Nobody was looking at the big agencies, but I saw it as an ecosystem problem that the big traditional content companies, the newspapers, the magazines, the TV stations and networks, they were in just as much trouble as the ad agencies and the, and the national marketers like the Procter and Gambles and the Crafts and the Unilevers who were feeding them the ad dollars. Oh, yeah. And then nobody was looking at it as an ecosystem problem. So that's, I started, it was initially called Church and State or uh, called the Tight Group. And then we strategically aligned the name with what we were doing and, and we, we changed it to Church and State. Yeah. This is very interesting to me. I, you know, last year, uh, so I'm in the middle of attempting to produce a television show about comedy and travel. All my listeners have heard me talk ad nauseum about this, but it's called uh, Funny Planet, and we shot the pilot in Reykjavik, Iceland. And it's interesting because one of the one of the issues that has been going on in the world of television production is that nobody's really sure how anybody is really making any money doing it anymore. It's pretty right. it's pretty interesting, and like you know, numbers for have you know very produced, budgeted uh, pr- productions that are on even network television. Uh, are have barely as many viewers as you know somebody who shoots a twenty minute YouTube show in their backyard, and it's yeah. amazing because like the 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 data, the impressions, like how all that money flows is like completely changing. And so we have all these executives um, at the New York Television Festival that we were finalists in last year uh, for the comedy breakout competition, and they were like basically the ones you know they would give big talks about things that were going on in the industry, and people would ask them questions. And then as soon as you get them off of the stage and start asking them questions in the hallway, they kind of like their whole facade breaks down and they're like, yeah, nobody has any fucking idea what's going on. <laughs> like it's, it's right. a total, no idea, total cluster. Nobody has any clue. Everything is confusing. We're all terrified for our jobs. <laughs> like it's, just, it's like, it's madness. And the only people who I thought were the, the ones who were really secure were like the funny or die people. Cause they were like, yeah, like we're pretty solid. We got a great website that people go to. <laughs> that, that, that's about it <laughs> yeah that's right, that's right. It's like, yeah, Adam ruins everything is the highest paid you know it's like well this will give you an indication of... so I had a, a TV deal um, oh. with Mark Burnett oh really and um, it was a co- yeah it was a new uh, business in ABC in the US and CTV here and it was kind of a – it was a combination. It combined American Idol with Shark Tank. So it was mm-hmm. like entrepreneurs show up. They pitched their thing. But it's actually the studio audience that decides who gets the cash. And I was the, one of the Simon Cowell. Like, it was me and Amber Mack. He's a good friend. Amber and I were the two like Simon and Paula. So we would give feedback even though we had really no – and we shot a pilot. And the, the pilot was a massive – it was a big pilot, a massive studio. And when I signed my contract, my wife and I said, this is Canada and the U.S. national on ABC. Like, put the house up for sale. We're moving into a mansion. This <laughs> is going to be amazing. No word of a lie. The contract I signed had me being paid $1,400 an episode. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And I, and this is Burnett. This is ABC. This isn't YouTube. This isn't like some offshoot Netflix, uh, Apple TV. This is this is ABC. <laughs> yeah. And when I went to the producer and said, like, what up? Did you did you drop two zeros on this? Like, what what? And the response was very simple. It's like, look, hey, Burnett doesn't get to 
see your back end. This is going to triple your speaking fee. It's going to double your agency business. And either you want the gig or you don't. And it used to be, especially for those of us in comedy, that you did a bunch of free stuff in hopes of getting the TV deal where you and now you do the TV deal for free in hopes of striking it rich in other places. Yep, that's exactly. You've nailed it completely. That's the model has completely changed, which is now the 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 industry's changed such that these people who are on who are, you know, I mean, just comedy is a great example. Like you look at all of these comedians who are clamoring to get on Conan or, you know, late night or whatever, and it has nothing to do with the fact that they're like, "Oh, now I can you know, now I'm making all this money from being on TV. It's more like, oh, now all these people know me, so they're going to follow me on Twitter. They're going to follow me on Instagram. They're going to follow my YouTube yeah. channel. And also now I have the credit to say that I have been on Conan, so now you can put me up on your show and I sound like a somebody. These guys are like gatekeeper, tastemaker type. It's 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 more like the seal of approval around curation than it is anything else and that's t completely how the how the how it's changed that's a very it's interesting that you've captured that and seen it from the inside yeah yeah and it's 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 kind of like in the speaking world people will say oh i'm a three times tedx speaker and i go oh so sorry so translated that means you spoke for free three times <laughs> yeah. that's what that tells me And it's like, yeah, but it's – I'm like, no, there's no yeah, but I, – like I see the point of doing one. If you want to do one, you want to explore it, you know, whatever. Um, but there seems to be this badge of honor of like, no, but I did a TEDx talk. And I'm like, you spoke for free <laughs> in the hopes that you're going to be the next Simon Sinek, that your thing is going to take off. And there's been like five of those people and four million others who yeah. have just spoke for free. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not saying that I have anything against Ted or like the model's the model. If you want to sign up for it, that's cool. Like go for it. But let's not call it more than what it is. <laughs> it's free speaking. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. That man. people look at on their phone. Yeah, that's exactly, you know, and you think, I mean, the number of people, it's very funny that you've nailed that the number of people, cause I, it's like, I, I've never done a 10 X TEDx talk, but I know a bunch of people who have, and it's really funny because they're like so excited. The model is the same every time. They're so excited that they get it. They can't wait. They're like practicing. They got this great idea. It's really going to blow up. They give the TEDx talk and like nothing happens. <laughs> and like any non, it's yeah. funny because like in the worlds that you and I occupy, it, you know, it, it, you can tell, you know, TEDx speakers are a dime a dozen. Like you can just get so many, so many people have done it. And it's cool. It's not not cool. It's definitely cool. But you know, amongst normal civilian non people in our world, it's people get like really like, wow, you, wow, really? That's a, how did you do? That's amazing. And you're like, yeah, it's the same thing with getting yeah. like with stand up comedy is like, you know, you can you do you headline, you do different shows. Like I did the Edinburgh Fringe Festival a while ago, and same kind of thing. Like it was really cool to do it, but you know, in the world of comedy, that's really not that big of a deal. You tell people it, and they're like, oh yeah, cool, that's <laughs> neat that you did it. You tell it to oh, them. You, you applied. You applied. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You applied. How did you get that? I, I, put, I pulled out a piece of paper and I sent and emailed it off and then they called me and I got it. Yeah. Yeah. And then they said, hey, you want to do it? <laughs> like that, was, that was basically yeah. how it went. And so people are, you know, I, and some people don't even go to that barrier, but amongst normal people, it sounds amazing. But as soon as you kind of get in, in, inside the circle, it, the, the, you know, the, the, the magic aura around it sort of drops. Yeah. And I, I love 
like you. I think I, it's not that I like that, you know, it's like it's not that it's not cool because it is. But I think as long as we define it what it is, not just for our audience, but to ourselves. Oh, yeah. Like I think as an art form, it's a really interesting thing that that speaking in that format format. It's not a format that I love, but or not that I, it's that I don't love it for me. But I I um I love that it is that it is an art form that it is an expression and it is a very specific way to to express yourself and an idea and I'm any of them because you love exploring different ideas then that's amazing. But what I find is that the most of the people who are doing it are doing it as a, a means to an end to something else. Oh yeah, which is like I want it in hopes that then I will then be booked to do that. Well, that's not. No, that's like it's it's like saying I really want to get you know star in my own sitcom, so I'm going to be an extra for yep. a few months. Yep. Like that's not. <laughs> it's not really how that works. <laughs> it's not how it works, and you can't like you can't show me people who were extras who are now celebrities and go, well, it worked for them. It's like, well, those are outliers, and it just doesn't typically work that way. Yeah, that's exactly. And the people who 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 did make it. You know, who you look at and go like, well, Sir Ken Robinson, you know, he was the guy. He took off. the. He was a knight. He, the man was knighted. He <laughs> did some shit before his TEDx talk. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, talk about a, that. What is those? That is one of my. So if you're listening to this and you don't know who Ron is referring to, you need to go look up Ken Robinson's talk. Cause it is both of them that he's given. I, he's I, at, I, at least maybe he's given more. But the two that I know of were fantastic but it is amazing because he not only was knighted before he gave those speeches but you'd referred to a moment in your in your performance and when you were uh, doing your one-man show at the fringe where this woman like had kind of gasped right before you got to this point he said a line in one of his talks that i will never forget because it the audience gasped and he said something like he was talking about the american civil war basically at abraham lincoln he was quoting abraham lincoln and he said this quote from Abraham Lincoln in 1864. And then he goes, you know, I have no idea what was going on in America in 1864. And like the audience gasped because they were like, how do you, what? <laughs> like, how, did you not, how do you not know that? <laughs> like, it was yeah. so, it's one of the inadvertently funniest things I think I've ever seen in a TED talk that like, and it was clear that he was like, wow, I really missed something. <laughs> like when he was up on he, stage. He, he is He's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. The funniest line I ever saw him give, um, just to, it says everything about his sense of humor. He started the talk by saying, I just came from New York. And what's interesting is that the, he, he was in Calgary. And he said, I just came from New York. And there's a reason New York exists. And, you know, like because of the, the, because of the, of the, the water, you know, it's a great shipping uh, place. And so a city kind of built around the port. So there's a reason that why why Los Angeles exists and 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 there's a reason why Calgary exists and then he had this beat and then he just said presumably and <laughs> it's just that alone one word <laughs> delivered in the driest way possible presumably uh, that's so British which I just I'm like <laughs> Oh man, and I'm like, I gotta follow that. Yeah. Okay. Oh my god, All what right. a great, what a sharp wit. The um, let me oh. but hold on. I want to back up to something because we were talking about not really bullshitting yourself on what a TEDx talk is and isn't. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about, just to bring this back to the book, is that 
you um you you do a really good job talking about authenticity in the book. And part of the reason that I dug reading this was I was like, oh, Ron really like this. You just you have a you have a theme throughout the entire book, and and that theme is basically like just don't have what you call them integrity gaps, basically. But you're basically like, look, don't bullshit yeah. yourself, don't bullshit anybody else, and that relationship that you have between a brand and your and your customers is sort of what is based on authenticity and there's something about that that i really resonated with me because i really think that they're you know we're living in the world of having lived for a while in the world of sales and marketing for a day job and living in the world of comedy one of the things that is totally true about comedy is that you can't bullshit an audience like they're gonna read it on you immediately and yet, I feel like in my in the office that I, offices I've worked at, people bullshit e- themselves and each other all the time, and they they kind of just you know, all the time. I, yeah, an endemic of every company that I've been involved with that has not been successful, uh, which is a few, they have a culture of kind of a, of, <laughs> of saying things that aren't true and just kind of going with it. And it's fascinating to me that you're you ha- you really kind of a, a theme throughout this book is like yeah don't do that shit <laughs> like be honest with yourself and be honest with people you're talking with. Yeah, you know I think I I maybe it was because my background as a creative guy and I don't mean a I don't know whether it's a small C or a big C whatever but you know my title was creative director exactly that role often. What I loved about that role is that you were the outsider of the outsiders, right? Like the agency is an outside counsel to the to the brand. Yeah. And even within that structure, the creative team, they're not involved in the daily details and the budgets and everything else. So you always had this fresh outlook. And while account people, you know, and it's a, like being an account person is a very difficult job. But, uh, you know, whether it's account people or the clients who like, well, we can't do that because of these three things. And the creative part, I was, I would just constantly go like, "What? That's bullshit. Why? No, that doesn't make sense." And be like, "Yeah, we know, but but Gary, you know, he doesn't like the color. Like, well, it doesn't matter. Like, why are we doing that?" And to the point now, agency, because I'm not deeply involved in the daily details. We have a great team here, and if I do end up having a conversation with clients. I can see the team going, what's he going to say? You know, and I'm going to undo the three weeks of work that people have done. Like, why the fuck are we doing that? Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, and, um, but I think we do. I think that's where, if a business is going to grow, like, we just need to have real conversations with real people. And if you want to connect with your consumers, like, I'm sorry. One of the examples um, that I'll use is, I don't think I used it in the book, or maybe I did, but... Uh, if you walk into a store and somebody a staff comes up to you and they go, hi, is there anything I can help you find today? Our gut reaction 99% of the time is to respond with this statement, no thanks, I'm just looking. Yeah. And it's as if the, the salesperson comes up and goes, hey, here's the deal. I'm going to say my half of the script. You say your half of the script and then we can just go our separate ways and not worry about it and we're just we're filling people with those scripts to say in meetings to say with bosses to say before a sales whatever and people just have this script and it doesn't mean anything to anybody and i you know i i spoke at this inc ce 
from yesterday. And, and part of my message to the CEOs in the group, there were 100 or 70 CEOs, was like, you stand up and before every offsite and you go, let's revisit our mission statement. And you put up this slide with the mission statement. It means nothing, nothing yeah, nobody. <laughs> to anybody. Like, nothing. But you're checking a box going, we have a mission and I communicated it. It means nothing. It's bullshit language <laughs> written by people in a committee environment where you got to get every department to come in. And, and by the time that, you know, custodial services, you know, has their input, it's eight pages too long. It's, you know, full card of buzzword bingo. And I just get really frustrated. Like, again, if you're just honest and go like, we're going to do this thing because because it's got to sit in a website somewhere, and but we we are aware that it's not inspiring anybody. Great, go to town. But if you are writing something like that, filled with BS buzzwords, oh my god, and yeah. you're claiming that it is inspiring and uniting your people, wrong. Yeah, I this this is so this is so true though because I feel like that's that's where this culture comes from is that there's this idea that. You know, people. I I think part of it in culture is that there's this, at least in corporate culture, is that there's this aura of importance around, you know, executives who are trying to come up with really good, you know, inspiring things, and they think about themselves like, oh, I'm gonna come up with this, and everybody around them is like, yeah, it's great, we love it, it's so cool what you just said and did. And 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 then it's totally not the case that much of the time, like you just said, if we just said, look, we need to come up with this shit because it's got to sit on the website and it's just going to be there and it has to look good for people who visit it when they click what we're about on our web page or something. Well, then you're sol you would solve that problem and you wouldn't create some kind of weird resource or structure that then you have to refer to a hundred times in different meetings that everybody sits around and rolls their eyes at. And then you have exactly what you described, this integrity gap at the center of your conversation. So it's like part, part of what I think is kind of interesting about this book that you've written, and we can talk more about it um, kind of in, in more detail. I, I'd kind of interested to know what would lead to it, but like... What I kind of dig about it is that your solution to this problem is like, look, just just be, think about what you want to do, behave in the way that you have decided by thinking about it, and then talk about it. And I feel like what a lot of organizations do, and where this goes wrong, is that they think about it and then they and then they talk about it, or they don't think yeah. about it at all and they just talk about stuff and then they start doing that stuff. And I've been in that organization too, and that's a fucking nightmare. So it it's yeah. very interesting to me because it's like yeah if we just it's it's almost like this world and this is why in a way this is perfect for this podcast Ron is it's like we live in this world where shit is madness all the time and you talk about it at the beginning of the book you're like this is chaos like we live in this world of chaos and like Douglas Rushkoff wrote writes this book Present Shock and there's this concept of things are happening. We have this flattening of our media environment. Everything is happening at one time. Everything is chaos. Everything is crazy. It's all on your phone. It's all blowing up. I get the you know eight times a day. Not only do I get text messages from friends going, "Did you see what Trump just tweeted?" But the New York Times is doing push notifications that are like, "Did you see what Trump just tweeted?" <laughs> like, I can't. You know, yeah. I have no time to do anything. And and yet. It feels like this is the right message for this time because you're like, hey, we know it's chaos, but actually sit down and think about what the hell you want to do before you do it. Then go do it. Now go talk about it. Like, and, and it's almost like you have to remind people to like slow down slightly because everything is so insane around them. Yeah, it's it's um, I think the urgency around messaging 
and just like every aspect of our life so we just want to get to the next level and i think what that has created is that people who can no longer play the long game yep and and it is a long game yeah, it is a long seth, game seth godin would agree with you i think i think you're making a point that he has said a bunch of times i think you're totally right about that yeah um and um i i just like and i've seen it i certainly see it on on for clients who would like can we just get the metrics and the thing and like uh, like, yeah, like, and again, I'm not saying really important. I think analytics are important, and they can give us insights into things. But to just chase them and look for that one little hit of heroin that we peak, and then, but without actually sustaining it, because if you just want, if you want a million views of your video, I can buy you a million views. Yep. Like I can buy that for you. That's not a big deal. But if you actually want to build your business, let's talk about that. And that may mean that you're going to get five views today and 10 views tomorrow and 100 views the next day and whatever views being substitute for whatever metric you want. And 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 more and more. And that's and I don't know where it all ladders up to, whether it's all the way up to, you know, the the average shareholder who's expecting their quarterly returns or whatever. But as a as a business culture, we just, just keep chasing these quarterly numbers mm -hmm. and then and then you know if you if you if you go into wells fargo and five thousand people create fake accounts because their management has said we don't care what you do meet your numbers well then don't be surprised when people abandon your corporate values and you have one massive integrity gap yep. and it's not a coincidence that five thousand people created fake accounts at one time that is a culture that has led to that. And I don't even think it's even the manager's culture. It's the shareholder. It's, it's you know, it's and why I, I, I think part of the reason why I wanted to leave the agency that I was at, which was, and I'm not shitting on big agencies either. I mean, I, I, there are some parts of it that are, they're amazing. They're awesome. And I love my time there. But I just wanted the personal control to go, no, not doing it, not going to do it. Um, I, we, you know, fired a client a couple of months ago and it would have been very difficult for, for me to do that as being part of an international network because the quarterly returns from every office can't do that. Mm -hmm. I was like, that is not why I started my own agency. No, you got to go. This is, I, this is very interesting because it's you sticking with these kinds of values is what's the challenge because everybody and this is I think I think about this more and more because like you were saying it's it's everybody it's not just a shareholder culture thing it's not just a this particular department culture there's something I think generally about the way that I mean particularly America I'm sure Canada gets part of this too but particularly America approaches the idea of growth and company growth and you know we we're so you know China has a hundred year plan China has a plan for in a hundred years. Here's where China's going to be. This is what's going to happen. Here's what we're building toward. I I, I would be massively surprised if uh, the Trump White House has a hundred year plan. Uh, it. <laughs> I think that everybody is so focused on small short term gains that they're missing out on a massive ma and I mean just macroscopically. Uh, American culture is 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 has this problem because I think that again, like uh, I was, you know, I said earlier, like one of the issues endemic to every organization I've been in that's been kind of non-functioning has been this kind of integrity gap. Well, part of that has also been a focus on how are we going to make our numbers this quarter, and then you're like, we can't make our numbers this quarter from a sales perspective. Here's the things that are missing, and 
the message back from management or whoever is like, yeah, well, but how are you going to make them this quarter? And you're like, well, I just came, you know what I mean? Like hope isn't a strategy. Yeah. You coming back to me and going, how are you, you know, it's like me saying we can't, I can't run this marathon in two hours. And then somebody going, well, but how are you going to do it? You're like, no, it's just, look, <laughs> yeah, yeah. is it conceivably possible to run a marathon in two hours? I mean, I, I guess it is. I don't know. You'd have to run really freaking fast. Um, but, you know, it's maybe we can build to that point. But, like, it, it, it requires a, a, a kind of conversation that's honest and also doesn't have a lot of um, judgment involved with it. And I think that, that that's, the, that's the part of the – that's the think part that an organization needs to do uh, before they start going after the do part. Yeah. That is such a great metaphor, Brennan. I think at the um... – if, if an organization said like, hey, it's really important for us to run a two-hour marathon. That's what we're being judged. That's what we, we, what we will be judged on. So just run the two-hour marathon. And you go, oh, like, I didn't, like I'm not even wearing running shoes. <laughs> it's going to happen. And they go, okay, well, what, what can we do, right? Because we need that outcome. And you're like, 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 I could get in a car, you know, and I could – and they go, okay, just do that. Like, just, just do that. Don't tell anybody. We'll just do that. And then you do that. And then the next day, it's like, okay, you're going to run the two-hour marathon again. You're like, yeah, but okay, I'm wearing the running shoes, but I, but I haven't been training. Opposed to from the day one going, we want to run a two-hour marathon, and we're going to get up every morning, and we're going to run five miles. And we're going to do it until we can increase to eight, until we can increase to, to 10, until we can increase to 15, blah, blah, blah. And we're going to get there. And once we get there, then we're going to be able to run a two-hour marathon uh, on our own with no outside help. Every single day or every single day we can. Why? Because we've trained and we've done it incrementally. If you want to just do that today, you're going to have to, you know, have to throw money behind it. You have to pay for it. And then you're going to, you're back to square one. You're just starting over again. You haven't built anything. Um, and um, I think it was more, I personally just wanted more personal freedom to go, I'm not doing that. And that's, I mean, the trick of building an organization is that, you know, there's some work we do here that I wouldn't have said, ah, that's the thing I want to focus on. Mm, mm. But now I've got 20 mouths to feed. Yep. And, and so some things you're like, okay, like we're going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to turn this down and lay people off um, because it is aligned with our value. Like the people are aligned with their values and stuff. So. Um, so we're going to, we're going to grow this revenue however we can, but, um, but they're opposed to having a client who is not in line with our values where you're going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to sacrifice some stuff to, to really walk away from this because it's just not good for our soul. You, you mention in, I think you quote it. First of all, I should say one of the things I love about this book is all the fake quotes that you throw in here. <laughs> this is so goddamn funny. I was like. In a in a world full of uh, fake news and you know Russian cyber bots that are you know cutting up and and hacking up everything on the internet, I think this is uh, I think this is hilarious. This is one of my favorites. I'm going to read this real quick. Uh, this is at the front of chapter eight. This is the do part. So if you if you if you get the book, uh, these this is like a really delightful part of it. This is a quote that uh, Ron writes in here. The only difference between someone who dreams of being successful and someone who is actually successful is the word actually. So suck it up, get off your ass, and actually do something. And then you attribute the quote to Mr. Rogers. <laughs> 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 oh, my God. That is well, so funny. Just, 
like there's a re- there's a specific reason why I wanted to do that. Um, one because I was just looking for for you know humorous integrating a little bit of humor into the book because I just, I just felt like a lot of business books they just they just feel like they can't be and like no that's not me. So there was that. But the other thing was I hate I hate business quotes. I I hate when people like as Steve Steve Jobs said and like. You're quoting one of the rarest human beings to ever walk the face of the earth. Yeah. And we're supposed to live up to that. Like people quote Gandhi. Well, as Gandhi said, I'm not God. Like I'm not Gandhi. I'm not. Yeah. I'm never going to be. <laughs> and not and only I, that, like, I wanna, Gandhi probably like, wasn't Gandhi. Re- <laughs> and Gandhi wasn't. Exactly. Exactly. And so I just hate quoting other people. I remember going, I was at, at a, doing a game. And I saw the speaker who will go unnamed, but, and it was just one quote after another, as Winston Churchill said, as this person said, as this person said, and I just, I was like, but what, what do you say? <laughs> like, I want, I want your perspective. And, and so I, I'm speaking, I will use quotes very, very sparingly mm. because, uh, I just, I feel we're quoting people who who achieved a level of success that is unattainable for 99.9% of the population. Yeah. Included. Yeah. That is so funny. I let me, but at the risk of now pulling a 180, you mentioned something earlier where you said, you know, if we have a client who's not aligned with our values, I just wanted the freedom to say, no, thank you. I don't want to work with you or I don't want to work with them. You have a, on, on, on page 135, I'm going to bring it up. I, I annotated the shit out of this book, by the way. It looks like a, it looks like a, a, a six-year-old oh, nice. got it because, I mean, it literally looks like a toddler just decided to draw things all over it because I underlined so much shit and wrote notes in the margins. But you talk about, um, this is part of, the, part of the part where you talk about values and things like this, but you quote Bill Bernbach, and you said, remember, but remember what advertising legend Bill Bernbach said, it's not a principle until it costs you money. It's funny, yeah. Ron, because I was reading this book and it's it kind of came into actually came came into my life at a unique time because I uh, sort of fired a, a consulting client. Um, it was mutual. I think we both agreed that we were like, yeah, this is not a great fit in terms of a consultative relationship. But part of the reason I did that was that uh, I I could tell that I was like the some of the things that this client wants me to do are going to compromise my integrity. And in my sense of self, and I thought, you know what, they're not paying me enough for, to, to do that. And so when I left, it cost me, you know, potentially thousands of dollars on this contract, which could have gone on and, and extended and a lot of stuff. But I felt good about it. And it was funny because the last day I had at the office, a couple of people messaged me and they were like, hey, I heard kind of what happened and, and I, you know, why you left, I think, uh, made sense to me. I think that, you know, why you decided to make these decisions. Um, and then I read that quote like literally like two days later in your book and I was like, oh man, I suddenly felt like this weight had lifted off of me. Like I'm like, oh yeah, I have principles and that's why I am not making as much money <laughs> in this in this specific circumstance. Yeah, it's the, you know, the Nike ad, believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything, you know, um, and and I think that... Where we can get trickier situations or muddy waters or whatever is that it's not a black and white issue. It's not a flip the switch like it's a, it's all or nothing. Like I think there are a bunch of gray areas in there. And at the end of the day, I think it, you've, it's up to the individual person to make a choice that makes them feel good. And hey, if you just like you know the smell and taste of money and you don't care and that what's that's what makes you happy in life, go to it. You know, 
Have at it. Oh, but I'm, to, I'm oh, but to be that person. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, I'll I'll be honest with you. Like, I, I when I got that TV deal with Burnett, um, my agent called and said, I have a tricky. I don't know how to say this. And I'm like, oh, this sounds juicy. <laughs> what, what is it? And she's, I have a request. And I'm like, all right. And I have and have had my entire life, I have a uh, David Letterman-like gap, not between the two middle teeth, but one tooth over. And it's called a diastema. Yeah. So it's a gap in my teeth, I've always had it. And my entire life, I said, I'm not fixing it. It's me, it's 100% me. And I, I have a cap on a tooth, it's not like I've got the you know, like dental work with broken teeth, but on specifically on the gap, I'm just like, it's been that way my entire life. I'm not gonna fix it and close the gap out of any superficial reason. It's me. And I was always comfortable with that. And um and then they said we want oh, no. <laughs> to fix the gap in your teeth. Yep. And so the CTV, the Canadian network said they found it endearing. ABC said they found it distracting. And that they wanted me to close the gap. So I went home to my wife and my wife, I told her and she said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm not closed. Forget it. And I mean, I have this principle my whole life. I said, I'm not fixing the gap, blah, blah. And she goes, are you going to get the gig if you don't close the gap? And I said, no. And she said, fix your teeth. <laughs> and that, that's, I get it. Like sometimes the principles kind of get in the way of us in a short-term basis, right? Like, had that show taken off, it would have allowed me to do things in life that the sacrifice on that one tiny little value, I think, would have been worth it. And and I don't know. I mean, and, and other people may go, he's completely contradicting himself. That's immoral. I like, And that's totally fine. You can believe that. But I think there, it's not all or nothing. I think there are some times when you just go, I don't feel good about this. I'm just going to behave in this way. And I don't care about the money. Or vice versa. Yeah, yeah maybe this doesn't... Is, completely in line but I'm fine with it it's kind of superficial at best and you know um, so it, it is a tricky situation but if you ever have like you had that feeling in the pit of your stomach of like this just doesn't feel right then it's probably not and you got to do things yeah but it's I, all think, I, I think that the, the, the offset of people exactly. not making those decisions I think the offset of, of a whole culture of people you know, just saying, yeah, but I'll just compromise this thing here and this thing there. And, you know, I don't know how you feel about Jordan B. Peterson, who's in the media a ton. I'm sure also in Toronto and Canada, you're probably sick of hearing about him. But he lives here. Yeah. 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 One of the things that I think he has said that really resonated with me, though, was he was basically like, look, I, you know, you if you're going through your life making constant compromises here and there, you know, by the time you do enough of those, you're not, you can't even recognize yourself anymore. Yep. And you have to really pay attention to this kind of shit. So it's like, look, it might be superficial, it might be ridiculous, but, you know, whether or not you're going to fix this gap in your teeth, but this is something that you've said before. And the, like, like, this is what I, I, I dig about your book is that you're like, look, you're, you're, you're thinking and you're doing and you're saying should really line up with the same things. And if you're saying things and you're not doing them, then that's a problem. And, and that's why you should think about them before you do them. And you shouldn't be saying them if you didn't think about them or you're not doing them. And like the, you know, I, I almost feel like partially, <laughs> go ahead, sorry. 
Yeah, no, you go, you go. Well, I was just going to say, I almost, it's funny because the book, like, in an ideal situation, I think that you should think, do, say. But I feel like, I, and a lot of times I'm like, well, yeah, but it's almost like this process where you need to get into a spot where you're thinking about it, then you do it, then you can talk about it. But sometimes it's like a up or down, we walk around this situation, but you should be doing all three of these things when you're in, in some way while you're, while you're moving around the world. Yeah, totally. And I think the saying part is not just about promoting the um, – is promoting the stuff that you believe in, the actions you take. Mm-hmm. The integrity gaps that we've experienced, right? Like, you know, I if I stand on stage and say, hey, we have to embrace failure, I will typically – follow it up with and I know how easy that is for me to say <laughs> I get it like it's really easy to stand on stage and go you should embrace failure you got to live your authentic but the reality of working within a global organization wherever people work it's just it's just not that easy and so I think we just like I will tell that story on stage mm-hmm. it's not often but I, but I tell the story of like hey I had this thing and I I totally actively chose an integrity gap mm. Because mm-hmm. the potential of what it would offer, because I thought the 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 compromise was a tiny compromise, and the upside was so big, mm-hmm. and so I just kind of looked the other way on. I totally also understand your point. I think that's totally valid, and appreciate and applaud people who go. I have zero tolerance. Yeah, I have a strict set of rules that I always use, and I never veer from that. Um, as my friend Scott Stratton likes to say, I never ever do that. And, until I do, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's funny. I've heard that from a few women I've dated. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm. That takes us in an area. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I should probably be careful about this in our Me Too era. I, yeah, uh, I should. <laughs> that's too funny. Um, yeah, the, uh, the 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 I want to be cognizant of time. We kind of got it coming up here just in a in a little bit, I think. But yeah. um, I, uh, I I I wanted to talk with you about um, some of the the interesting talk you have around. I, I mean, again, around sort of integrity and brand integrity. But there's a big thing in the media lately around uh, pride. I thought this was fascinating that the um, th- there's a lot of especially in the New York Pride Festival this year. There's a lot of brands that are what doing what we call pink washing, and it means yeah. that a brand that is uh, that is not has has never had really any particular love or affinity for the gay community suddenly is like, hey, Bud Light, we like you, we're, we like you, drink us, like we lo- we support Pride, and you're like, I, how did that even happen? But this is uh, what I thought I wanted to reference back to you is uh, on page. Do, 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 do. You guys can follow along at home. 148, um, you you talk a lot about this. You talk about the Gillette commercial, which I thought was fascinating. And this is a bit that I want to read back. Uh, you were talking about uh, when an organization enthusiastically supports a cause as a corporate purpose, the skeptics fly out and start to apply a microscope to the company's inner operations. That could not be more true. And I just thought it was so fascinating where you're like, yeah, when you're walking through the world, man, you you really have to be careful because we're just watching and not just with brands, but with celebrities. And, you know, you look at uh, Shane Gillis on SNL just got asked. He just got fired before he even started. And it's because we live in this world, yeah. with this digital track record where people go back through all of your stuff. But 
the first thing I thought of was I was like, oh, that is exactly what's happening with pinkwashing and the uh, New York Pride Festival is that people are just going through everything these corporations have done and going like, yeah, well, let's figure out how much you really support the gay community. And it turns out most of them not that much. Yeah, I I think there's a there's a, a couple of issues there. I mean, the first thing is that the difference between corporate pur- purpose and social. Mm-hmm. Because an organization supports or sponsors a pride festival, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's that they're claiming that that's their corporate purpose. Although some certainly have right, um, in that they 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 speak to the Chinese community because somebody has identified that as a demographic that is in need and interest in their products, and they end up coming up and saying like let's translate the ad into mandarin so we can speak more direct you know it's just effective advertising so it's like if you know that the gay community has more disposable income and they have a greater affinity for your products then you're going to go okay well where do they hang out and what language do we use and like i guess we're going to make it a pink or rainbow background and you know it's just it's kind of a normal advertising process right that they're just trying to appeal to somebody um because someone told them that those people want their products or that there's a potential for them to purchase their products so that ad guy me goes i get it i get why they do that and how that occurs and how you end up with a rainbow flag on a print ad or whatever how somebody says you'd sponsor the pride uh festival so it's just it's it's good people wanting to do the right thing you know it doesn't mean they're evil i i, I but i still i do think that we you know that's my brand guy justifying the behavior the consumer and citizen in me says that doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable that doesn't mean we don't ask those questions and I think the Gillette example, um, I do, I, I love that on one level and will reserve judgment until another. And full disclosure, I'm actually speaking to Procter and Gamble in November, I think it is. Um, but I, I, I like that they turned the microscope on themselves in one way. I like that one of the lines in the spot is, is this really the best a man can get? So they really, they questioned themselves of what they were standing up for mm. for all those years. And it's as if, in my mind, it's as if they were saying to themselves, did we do a good job in the past or are we part of the problem? That's what I took it as. Mm. Now, other people with other perspectives probably didn't take that and that's totally cool. But I think the, and and I know, know that they're donating, I think, I think if I remember correctly, it's a million dollars over three years or something. That's, that. For, and it's not that that is, wrong it's just easy yep i mean it's just easy to go we're just going to cut a check yep and it's a lot more difficult to look inward and say how do we do the work so that we can make strides and ensure that toxic masculinity doesn't exist within our own organization Mm -hmm. and what we do to operationalize that that's where it gets really powerful now the balance of that in the perfect world, you do that work first, and then you talk about it. Now, of course, that work takes a long time, and it's probably somebody going, we may not have the time to do it. It's going to take us three years to fully execute that, and we're going to lose market share to, to by that point where we're no longer going to be a viable business. Yep. And so we kind of got to do them simultaneously. And I think the only way to do that is then to be completely transparent about it and go, we're not done. Here's the plan that we're going to take over the next six months to ensure that toxic masculinity doesn't exist within our organization. And we're going to check back and give you a status update. Mm. And I think that's to sh- I mean, that to me gets really powerful where you can kind of put your say at least at the same time as you do. 
That's uh, this is just fascinating, man. I mean, like I, uh, I, I legitimately could talk. I think uh, almost all day about a lot of this because I feel like it's so interesting to to go through your book and in the examples that you have and the way that you like, you know, it's it's interesting because the 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 you talking about especially the uh, like the New York Pride situation and in pink washing from the perspective of a brand guy is I, some of these I think. Is the public or does the public per- misperceive what's happening in in some of these situations? And I think maybe Gillette's a, another good example, which is like there are real pressures on a, a corporation to exist, to have cash flow, to you know get some ROI on what they're spending. The brand perception is important, and managing it in the world is difficult. And you know having somebody say like what how. How, how come you're, you know, Bud Light, you're suddenly associating with, you know, homosexuality? That's ridiculous. That's never in the history of the product. Have you done it before? Well, it's like, well, yeah, maybe these are just a handful of decisions. And, and for some reason, they resonate in the world that we have today with, with so much more um, scrutiny than they ever have been. You know, let's not assign to conspiracy what can be explained by maybe incompetence or pressure a little bit. Not that I'm calling <laughs> the Gillette people or Bud yeah, yeah. people incompetent. But like yeah, yeah. the idea is like, you know, there's there's some kind of strange cultural social pressure that exists in a way that maybe hasn't previously. And I'm totally this is all speculating and going off book and everything. But it's very interesting to me that like Sometimes I hear things like that, like, you know, how dare they do something? And I'm like, well, I don't think they were, you know, the but, but executives at Bud Light probably weren't like, now everybody in the gay community will think they're our best friends or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, exactly. Like, they're they just live- trying to make small little victories. Yeah, exactly. They're just trying to do whatever. Maybe there's a handful of marketers and advertisers in that organization who are like, oh, this, is a, this could be a really cool little win. And, you know, suddenly... The New York Pride Festival is like we're not going to have them back anymore. So <laughs> I don't, you yeah, know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think everybody. Yeah, is... the other thing is what I find uh, what what I find really interesting is when people look to establish organizations and make fun of them for not being like a startup, mm. right? And Gillette is such a great example where there's like, oh, I love Harry's and Dollar Shave Club and they're and I and I like those too, right? I don't I don't use this the service, but. But I, I, I talk about it and I, and I talk about the ease and how they, you know, they're taking up the establishment. But if you're Gillette or if you're Schick, like, yes, there is some stuff there where, like, how do you not realize that, like, your blades are behind lock and key? Like, that's how expensive they are. They're behind lock and key in a drugstore. But for the people who go, like, they should just change their business model. And, like, you don't just wake up one day and go, we're going to walk in the 18th floor of head quarters we're going to fire 400 salespeople who call on retailers we're going to completely remove a channel or we're <laughs> going to start up this other thing which competes with the relationship that we've spent a hundred years building you just don't do that and 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 that's why i introduced this this uh, this concept of a concept car that we yes we need to innovate and we need to do things and chase things and perform an internal coup on ourselves if we're an established organization but you don't just you know throw everything out you you need to develop a concept car and the concept car is done off your assembly line and it's off to the side and it's a small little project and a small little team and you do it just to do it and then you see what you can learn learn from it and then you start to integrate those things into your assembly line and so that over time your established business your assembly line becomes more innovative and more progressive um the problem with a lot of organizations, because we can't play the long game, 
is that we got 15 ideas and we throw them at the assembly line. Yeah. And that's fucking chaos. <laughs> it's just chaos. And and you people are like, what's my job and who's doing what and what are the metrics and I don't know and the costs go through the roof and morale is going through the floor, and and uh, and then we sit back and go, well, no, why didn't we just do what we did last year? Because we knew what that was. So it's got to be this balance of we can't it can't be chaos. It just can't be chaos, but it also can't be comfortable. And it's the balance of those two that you know it's kind of like when I go out and do a speech i want two minutes or two but i hate doing an hour new material yeah a whole new speech that i've never done before um i just think people are paying for that and they should get the stuff that's really good that's been tested oh yeah no i this is like what this the source behind google's 20 percent time you know what i mean send spend some of your time doing something yeah, doing yeah. whatever just experiment mess around and not enough of that happens in organizations i think i, I think you're totally right about that there should be some kind yeah. of lab Every group should have a little lab that, you know, that you mess with um, and, and, and experiment in. Uh, I want to be again cognizant of your time. We we should, I think we should probably wrap this uh, wrap this up. Uh, yeah. Here, but let me um let me just tell you this book is going to be out October eighth. This I think podcast will be full retail out. distribution. Everything so you can get it anywhere, any bookstore. Dude, you're just run tight. Online just, or off. You're just crushing it, man. Crush. You're just crushing the world. You got these <laughs> turning down Mark Burnett deals because he doesn't want to mess with his teeth. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, to finish that story, we did the pilot very quickly. We did the pilot. It got picked up by ABC, but the show was called Dream Funded. And then, and when ABC picked it up, they made it Steve Harvey's Thunderdome. <laughs> oh, it was dreadful. God. Oh my god. <laughs> and I was not involved. Steve Harvey. And I don't say that to, to, I don't say it to, to to make fun of Steve Harvey because he's everywhere and he somehow this is going to kill my career. But uh, the show and I'm sure he would probably it was it wasn't like Shark Tank meets American Idol. Yeah. Shark Tank meets the kids say the darndest things. I think it was just not what I thought the show was going to be. And I, it's not easy to make a hit show, but that's where that. <laughs> oh, my out. God. That's so funny. Well, uh, <laughs> let me just ask Ron, uh, where can people get at you? Where can they find you? Where uh, where, where can they, they follow you at? So, yeah. So at, at, at Ron Tite on Twitter, at Ron Tite on LinkedIn, on Instagram, everywhere, rontite.com. Uh, there's a podcast called The Coup, which just launched this week. Uh, on the Frequency Podcast Network is the coup. It looks at disruption through the lens of political coup d'etat. You can get that wherever you get your podcasts, um, as long as you don't turn away from this podcast to go listen to that. Um, <laughs> and then the book is Think, Do, Say. It's available everywhere. There will be an audio book that comes out at the exact same time as the uh, as the uh, the printed book and the Kindle book and everything else. And then churchstate.co is the agency. Man, you are spinning a lot of plates, Ron. Uh, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for, uh, for for writing this book. I really dig it. Um, I, I encourage all listeners to go check it out. Go buy it on uh, Amazon or wherever. Uh, or wherever, you know, you can get Ron the, the greatest royalty for it. And, um, yeah. And uh, and and just and follow him. So thank you so much uh, for being a guest today, Ron. And meanwhile, the madness continues. 